0: Appropriate management of postpartum hemorrhage requires prompt diagnosis and treatment. However, there's some debate on various PPH prevention and management strategies and the corresponding scientific evidence. What do you believe is the right treatment strategy to prevent and manage PPH? Listen to find out more. In this third episode of a four-part podcast series on severe PPH, We discuss various topics on the management of severe PPH, and we also explore the scientific evidence combined with the clinical experience of the experts. This podcast is an initiative of Core2Ed and supported by an independent educational grant from Novo Nordisk. We're very excited to listen to your discussion.
1: I'm delighted to introduce you to today's speakers. Professor Louis Centieu, who specializes in the prevention and treatment of postpartum hemorrhage at the University Hospital, Bordeaux, France. Professor Christian von Heyman, who has a special interest in obstetric anesthesia and the management of patients with postpartum hemorrhage at the Vivantes Clinic in Friedrichshain, Germany. And myself, Dr. Homa Amadzia, I'm a maternal fetal medicine specialist at the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Innova Health Systems, United States. Postpartum hemorrhage, as we all know, is the leading cause of maternal mortality worldwide. It's an incredibly important topic, and early recognition and diagnosis is paramount. At many facilities, we might have algorithms to predict postpartum hemorrhage and who is at risk, but oftentimes these don't work, and we miss patients who might have severe postpartum hemorrhage. In this podcast, we're going to talk about several topics that are important for the prevention and management of postpartum hemorrhage. We're hope to attempt um, to review the latest evidence and gaps in scientific literature for the clinicians, the patients, and the health systems. So I will facilitate discussion as moderator, and now I'd like to welcome the experts. Professor Santee, if you could help introduce yourself, please.
2: Yeah, hello everybody, I'm Loïc Santi. And so, in this postcard, we will discuss new strategies for prevention of postpartum hemorrhage that has emerged this last decade. But the level of evidence for these new strategies remains mostly low. And we hope that this debate will help the listeners to determine the place of these strategies in the algorithm of the PPH management.
1: Professor Van Heyman.
3: Thank you, Homer, for the nice introduction. I am by training an anesthesiologist, intensive care physician, and I have a special interest and did some certification in thrombosis and hemostasis issues as well. And um, to me, as you can see from uh, the composition of the panel, PPH is a challenge to a multidisciplinary team consisting of the obstetrician that is clear, of the anesthesiologists who comes to the situation in most instances. And uh, therefore I'm very much looking forward to have a lively discussion with you uh, on the most debated issues in uh, the treatment and management of severe postpartum hemorrhage.
1: Well, thank you both for joining us today. So let's jump into our first topic. Should tranexamic acid be used prophylactically to prevent postpartum hemorrhage? As you may know already, tranexamic acid is an antifibrinolytic, which helps to stabilize fibrinolytic and reduce bleeding or blood loss. It's been consistently shown in non-obstetric trials to improve outcomes and reduce bleeding by about thirty percent, and with the most recent PROS three trial in non-cardiac surgery. In the past three to five years, it's been studied many randomized trials, such as the Trap Trap two and MFMU multi-center study, with some equivocal findings on efficacy for the prevention of postpartum hemorrhage and delivery. Professor Senti, can you discuss some of these studies in a little bit more detail?
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Omar. As Everybody knows, in the women trials, TXA was shown to reduce bleeding-related mortality among women with PPH, especially when the drug was given shortly after delivery. And this results suggests that it may prevent coagulopathy after delivery rather than treat it. And in the TRAP trials among women with vaginal delivery, TXA decreased significantly the rates of blood loss above 500 millimeters, PPH according clinicians, and the use of uterotonics due to bleedings. In TRAP2 and MFMU trials conducted among women undergoing cesarean, the mean peripartal change in hemoglobin that was a secondary outcome was lower in the eutonyxamic acid group, although the clinical relevance of this result is questionable. And finally, cost-effective analysis suggests that TXA for the prevention of blood loss might be cost-effective, although the effect size in cost and effectiveness is low.
1: Yeah, thank you for those comments. And Professor von Hyman, can you tell us and share a little bit more about your perspective about the prophylactic use of TXA?
3: Yeah, thank you, Homer. Um, I'm full of respect for the work uh, Professor Senti did with uh, conducting the TRAP and the TRAP2 trial. And we carefully analyzed these trials when we updated the german guideline on diagnostics and treatment of pph and we finally came to the conclusion that most likely the prevention of blood loss after vaginal delivery and uh, cesarean section is not the best indication for tranexamic acid. And accordingly, our experience is that most of the patients are happy and uh, the blood loss is confined to a reasonable volume with the use of oxytocin and carbytocin that means uterotonic agents alone. And for these patients, we feel that the prophylactic use of tranexamic acid is not justified. And therefore, we recommend, and that was written down by the guideline group, that the use of tranexamic acid in those patients who have an increased blood loss, all patients who have a greater blood loss of 500 mils as measured by a, in a calibrated uh, drape, or in whom the obstetri- uh, obstetrician has the the feeling that this patient is having a diffuse coagulopathy or diffuse bleeding tendency, that these patients, and I'm convinced that those are these patients are the best population for the administration of tranexamic acid. And that means early. That is in most instances in parallel with uterotonic. Treatment, either oxytocin or the next step, cyprostone, the prostaglandin
1: derivate. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm curious uh, to hear if both of your opinions here were these large randomized trials that were conducted, uh, gave TXA at umbilical cord clamp. um, And that's mostly to avoid these theoretical risks for the neonate as potentially crosses the placenta. Um, Do you think that we still need? Additional trials that are given um, TXA pre-cord clamp to address this question because bleeding clearly starts, you know, before the start of surgery um, or right at the start of surgery rather, and not at an umbilical cord clamp.
2: Yes, it, it's an interesting question because you know some people considering that the uh, small effect that was observed in the trap trials and in the MFMU trials that was because the uh, TXA was given. Too late after the beginning of the delivery, and uh, some other trials, small singles with uh, methodological limitations, have shown higher effects when TXA was given before uh, the incisions of uh, for the cesarean and before the uh, cord uh, clumping but. Yes, I think it will be interesting to have additional evidence about uh, the effects with um, between the delay of the administration of the drugs and the plane delivery. But in France, I think it will be difficult to make uh, such a prior because we will have not the authorizations uh, to give TXA before the code because we have no data that uh, considered that the, the, the safety data, that uh, no higher risk of, in particular, you know, um, ischemic vascular events in the neonates. And we know that blood coagulation of the neonate is very different than the coagulations of the adult. So in France, it was impossible to perform such uh, trials, and but I will be interesting but other trials that could be performed in other settings.
1: Yeah, that is an interesting uh, perspective. I think uh, the take-home what I've heard so far is you know the TXA does clearly reduce blood loss and hemorrhage morbidity in non-obstetric large randomized trials. In obstetrics, this data has been somewhat inconsistent. Um, It may be due to the fact that participants who are higher risk, um, you know, haven't always been studied um, in large numbers, uh, or perhaps um, given the timing of the administration prior to delivery hasn't been done. And so I think. we should stay tuned for some of these trials. I know the TRAP PREVIA trial, it sounds like, hopefully will be coming out in higher risk populations. And the Women trial, um, I've heard as well, will be giving TXA pre-cord clamp in uh, 30,000 patients. So I think we'll have some more data to answer these questions. So maybe let's shift gears now to talk about the next topic, initiating blood transfusion or blood products. Should those be as soon as possible or based on certain criteria? In obstetrics, as we know, the timing of transfusion is not always clear. And um, sometimes uh, hemorrhage can be quote, unquote, controlled where the bleeding is gradual and accumulates to higher volumes uh, over the course of the surgery, or sometimes rapid and uh, uncontrolled and unexpected. Um, the term uterus has about 500 milliliters of blood uh, per minute that circulate. And so the, uh, when you have an extension into the uterine arteries or large venous sinuses, can be very brisk and uh, accumulate very fast, even within a minute or two. Uh, The decision about transfusion can be by the obstetrician at times, uh, based on the amount of blood loss in the field, or the anesthesiologist, uh, especially if the patient is hemodynamically unstable. And so, you know, sometimes lab values are used to guide this, but I wanted to hear a little perspective first, um, before we jump into that, about Uh, the evidence about timing of administration. If uh, Professor von Heyman, when do you think is the optimal time to consider a transfusion for obstetric patients?
3: Well, if you mean by transfusion, red blood cell transfusion, we learn from a lot of prospective randomized trials in other fields of medicine, especially in the fields of cardiac surgery, intensive care medicine, and other specialties that most patient populations do not do worse when they are transfused restrictively. Having this said, you will ask what is restrictive. And that what was usually adopted as a threshold was a hemoglobin value between six and seven for these patient populations and coming back to the population of young healthy mothers then in these patients, and I assume that most of them are healthy from a cardiovascular and pulmonary point of view, we would adopt a transfusion threshold of below seven to be safe in these mothers and also in the children. And we recommend, and this is a German and a European guideline Transfuse the patients when the hemoglobin drops below seven and is still hemodynamically unstable, then he will definitely or she will definitely need a a blood transfusion. But um, if, and that is our experience, and if the patient stabilizes very quickly, then we can even tolerate a profound anemia below a hemoglobin of six in these patients. Those patients will then probably require some iron replenishment because then due to the blood loss, they come into sort of an iron deficiency anemia and need some iron to to stimulate the bone marrow to produce red blood cells.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Professor Santee, can you comment on your experience and timing of transfusion and, and thresholds?
2: Yes, it's a, it's a big issue on the management of PPH because we have no real high level data on obstetric context. And I think that PPH is quite different than in other contexts uh, for um, bleeding. So. I share the concerns regarding the morbidity associated to the transfusion of blood loss. And to try to avoid blood loss it's an important uh, key issue of uh, the maternal outcome, as it was underlined by Christians. And I agree that the timing of transfusion during PPH is not evidence-based. However, we have some limitations you know, of the bedside of standard laboratory-based hemoglobin is that the level of hemoglobin remains often normal at the initial stage of the PPH, even when massive blood loss occurred. So when we have a policy of transfusion based on hemoglobin level, sometimes it's too late because when we control two hours after uh, the blood loss, uh, we can see important groups of the hemoglobins that was not expected. So I have to, to say that we have to be concerned about that at the initial stage, even with massive blood loss, uh, the level of hemoglobin can be uh, normal. So that's why I believe that blood transfusion has to be decided mainly on clinical science, in particular with the assessment of the quantitative blood loss, even if there is some issue about the quantitative blood loss, but when we use collective drops, uh, usually we have an about uh, a good uh, assessment of uh, of blood loss, and um, with hemodemic effects, too, and the the flow of the blood uh, loss, it's important uh, for me. And in my opinion, it might be too late to consider a blood transfusion for an ongoing PPH, not when the PPH is over, but ongoing PPH, when the hemoglobin has dropped below six grams. And the French guidelines, I recognize that uh, it's uh, with low level of evidence, but the French guidelines suggests that the administrations of units of packed blood cells should be based mainly on clinical signs of PPH severity without necessarily awaiting blood test results, and that the objective of transfusion is to maintain an hemoglobin concentration uh, above 8 grams. Concerning the point Lloyd made with using the
3: hemoglobin thresholds for transfusion, and I completely agree that clinical symptoms are as important as the hemoglobin value to guide the transfusion of pectoral blood cells, especially if in in the light of that, not all hospitals have an easy access to hemoglobin measurements. So sometimes you only have to depend on clinical symptoms to guide your uh, transfusion decision. But I would also like to say that um, every patient who has a bleeding problem uh, needs some careful observation and treatment in a specialized unit, and we usually admit those patients to the intermediate care unit where we have a close monitoring not only on the cardiovascular system but also on uh, on the blood gases, and so that we can. Quickly decide whether the patient needs some more treatment uh, or not, and I think this is an important point.
1: I can see there's some uh, differences of opinion in in the timing of the transfusion. I, uh, I, I think some of that comes from the limited data that we have in terms of uh, thresholds, and specifically the obstetric p- patient population. Um, a lot of I you know the guidelines we extrapolate from the cardiac and other fields, and we uh, really could use some more guidelines uh, based on trials in this field. I think that's a, a, an, a deficiency or a gap that we're highlighting here. So I think in terms of pharmacologic treatments used before or after, you know, besides uh, the blood products we talked about, when is the optimal timing. Should they be used before or after failure of conventional methods? And here, what I'm referring to specifically, besides the uterotonics, which are standard of care, would be things like fibrinogen concentrate or tranexamic acid, which we talked to about earlier in terms of prevention, but really we're talking more about treatment here. What is your uh, perspective on this, uh, Professor Senti?
2: As stated before, in the woman trials, as you know, the survival benefits associated with the earlier administration of TXA acid in these women with active PPH suggests that tranexamic acid should be given as soon as possible to achieve clinical benefits, as stated by the World World Health Organizations. And recently, the EMOTIVE trials provides additional indirect evidence in favor of an early use of TXA when PPH occurs. And for the fibrinogen administrations, as you know, observational studies of women with PPH indicate that a low fibrinogen concentrations in the early phase of PPH is associated with excessive subsequent bleedings and blood transfusions, suggesting that early use of fibrinogen might improve maternal outcome related to blood loss. Unfortunately, randomized control trials did not confirm this hypothesis.
1: So, um, Professor von Heyman, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, specifically the fibrinogen concentrates and what your perspective on the use on those would be?
3: Yes, um, thank you. Uh, And I agree with Loic. Unfortunately, the studies that we have, and we have at least three prospective randomized trials uh, looking at fibrinogen in PPH patients, um, they did not show significant benefits for the patients treated with uh, fibrinogen. But uh, if you closer look into the data, then you see that in all three studies, the patients who received or were randomized to the fibrinogen arm, they did not have a deficiency of fibrinogen. And they still had normal levels because fibrinogen synthesis is upregulated during during pregnancy. And so it takes some time and it takes some blood loss to make those patients fibrinogen deficient. And unfortunately, these three trial captured patients who had an almost normal fibrinogen. And uh, that is unfortunately somehow a failure of the study design um, and not a failure of the drug uh, because that is indicated in patients who are deficient of fibrinogen and i'm sure that uh, in those patients who are deficient of fibrinogen fibrinogen concentrate is the most effective and quickest way to replenish uh, fibrinogen and i'm sure although it has not been shown in prospective randomized trials that fibrinogen concentrate is superior to other treatment options like plasma or cryoprecipitate. But unfortunately, we do do not have these data right now. But what I would like to state, and this goes now back to the tranexamic acid discussion that we had before. If I assume that there is not only loss of fibrinogen, but also some fibrinolytic degradation due to an increased fibrinolytic activity in the blood of the patients, then it is strongly advised to give the tranexamic acid before you give the fibrinogen concentrate. Otherwise, the replenished fibrinogen will be broken down and then it may be not very useful for the patient.
1: These are, uh, I think, really interesting points uh, and and that we've all brought up here in this uh, conversation topic. Um, one, I think, uh, interesting uh, offshoot or segue from this is you mentioned the fibrinogen concentrate um, is much rapidly to uh, administer. And for those listening who might not know that FFP or cry participate takes time to thaw, and, and sometimes that can lead to delays. But the fibrinogen concentrate is often in the shelf. Uh, you mix with solution and can pretty rapidly administer Um, So time is important, as I mentioned earlier, with minutes can make a difference and added blood loss. I think speaking to a little bit about, this is a good area, I think, to incorporate the lab testing, Um, I'm curious what you're all, um, in terms of perspective or utilization of of point-of-care devices or lab tests to guide transfusion has been, and where do you think the gaps in this area are?
2: Yeah, I think so. We we need to have additional evidence about the use of uh, bedside test and uh, you know viscoelastic test and hemoglobin test uh, bedside to guide the transition. Maybe it could be uh, very helpful to try to give the good medication to the good patients. But unfortunately, we we don't have a lot of evidence about that. So because as you know. The so people who do not believe in the bedside test to guide the transfusion don't want to, perf- to perform randomized control trials. And the people who guide their transfusions because they believe that the lab test helps, they do not want to perform also uh, randomized control trials. And uh, so it's quite difficult to have evidence. And as it has been underlined by Christians about the prebenogen trials that one big issue when we try to have evidence about PPH and ongoing PPH and severe PPH, that when we perform eligible uh, women and we include women, sometimes it's not severe PPH. So we don't have include a good woman because we don't have time when there is a very severe PPH to include the woman and to give the administrations and to perform the randomizations. So it's one issue because when we have a negative trials, Maybe it's not the the drugs or the strategy that is negative, as stated uh, Christians, it's only the design.
1: Professor von Heyman, do you have any additional thoughts here?
2: Yeah, well, um, I think there is a
3: large ongoing controversy on how to use blood tests and point-of-care coagulation testing in patients who are bleeding because we always have the... Uh, the feeling that time is running away and we cannot wait for the blood results and we have to treat. Otherwise the patient deteriorates and bleeds to death hour. And so um, one of the advantages of um, point of care blood testing is that you really can have it at the bedside, very close to the patients and that you have a time advantage in that you have results interpretable results within five to 10 minutes after the test has been started and usually the central lab takes much longer and this is the advantage that we have with the point-of-care tests and i honestly doubt that the specific tests from the point-of-care coagulation testing are better than that what we have from the central lab but the time advantage is, especially in bleeding situations, um, a large a large advantage for the point of care testing. But uh, as Loic mentioned, we do not have very good evidence from prospective randomized trials, which thresholds we should adopt for guiding our substitution therapy with let's say fibrinogen, or PCC, or even factor 13, or even recombinant factor 7a. So um, that means that in the end, the attending anesthesiologist and obstetrician have to make up their minds on when to give what.
1: Yeah, no, thank, thank you for that, um, both of your comments and, and interesting points. I think the takeaway from this uh, question is, that it seems that tranexamic acid early use is critical for postpartum hemorrhage and that saves lives. Um, and that delays may add additional morbidity after the delivery. Fibrinogen concentrates or other pharmacologic interventions, um, as we alluded to as well, um, are not maybe not always available or don't have the lab testing um, thresholds clearly identified in evidence-based algorithms. Um, that uh, both obstetricians and anesthesiologists and, and other um, providers can agree upon. So I think that's a deficiency or gap right now we have in our uh, field uh, that can improve. Let's shift gears to uh, what does the multidisciplinary team really look like in the management of postpartum hemorrhage? I think this is a very fundamental to successful outcomes um, to have a, a multidisciplinary approach. Um, As we know, it's a it can be very hectic at times and the personnel involved um, range from the obstetrician to anesthesiologists, which we've clearly identified as a key personnel. However, the nurses and the transfusion medicine specialist, or even hematologists sometimes might be also involved in uh, patients who are severely coagulopathic or go into the ICU, for example. What thoughts do you, uh, both of you perhaps have on the importance of this and how they should uh, these team members should interact? Um Or even barriers in communication? Um, Professor Senti, if you can comment first.
2: Yes, it's a very important question because, as you know, most studies focusing on PPH aim to test the effectiveness of a drug, a device, a policy of blood product transfusion, but few studies have assessed the impact of the organization of care, in particular the role of medical staffing on PPH-related outcomes. So, However, it has been shown that a delayed call for obstetric assistance is associated with a two times higher risk of CVPPH compared with cases where the senior obstetrician was present or called within 10 minutes, and it's the same for a delayed call for an anesthesiologist. we know that it's important to call everybody anesthesiologist and obstetrician since the diagnosis of PPH. And it is obvious that the good communications between obstetricians, anesthesiologists, and midwives, nurses, is a key factor for an optimal management of PPH. And I think that the PPH management has to be together and not each on its own.
1: Yes, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Professor von Heyman, What what are some thoughts you have on this topic?
2: Yeah, well, I, I completely agree with
3: Loic and uh, to my feeling, the greatest challenge is to state and to make the diagnosis of this patient has a PPH and I have to take action. And if I've done this diagnosis, then I have to call an anesthesiologist then I have to call more personal and I have to call midwives and I have to call anesthesia nurses and so on and then I have to call a a senior obstetrician to to get his opinion and um, if this diagnosis is made and everybody knows what he has to do then it makes a team approach much easier because everybody knows what PPH means. And then we can, on both sides, agree upon what will be the next steps that each of us has to take. Shall we take the patient to the operation room? Can we leave it in the labor chamber or whatever, just as an example. And so um, establishing the diagnosis to me is key. And then the rest of the management should follow a treatment algorithm that should be Somehow derived from from guidelines based on existing evidence, and that treatment algorithms should be adapted to the conditions of the hospital uh, the patient is delivering in.
1: Yes, no, I I agree too in the sense that. Every health system is different in terms yes. of their access to the f- products or specialists, and especially in low resource countries, I think it's important to have a plan of um, that, that's feasible in those settings of what should be approached. And I think both of you made uh, the similar points about early recognition, and early calling of the specialists. Uh, I agree. And and as well, I might add that the continual um, communication, sort of not that initial trigger, but the perhaps uh, ongoing um, discussion, because things can change very quickly um, with the patient's status. And, and I think the continued uh, communication for that, you know, few hours, one to four hours or whatever, if it's in a severe postpartum hemorrhage, uh, would be important. Um, so. To conclude this podcast, we would like to provide a few clinical takeaways um, based on our discussion. Um, If I could ask Professor Senti, would you mind um, uh, providing two key clinical takeaways?
2: So as we have discussed, I think that the the most important thing is that it's a communication and excellent communication is required for the management of PPH. And I think that simulation trainings may help to improve the communications among the different teams. the second point is there is no room for improvisation since the management of postpartum hemorrhage, and all team members must know by heart their role and the management PPH algorithm that has been chosen and implemented in their centers.
1: Thank you. Uh, Professor von Heyman, what are your clinical takeaways for our listeners?
2: As I said before,
3: to me, it's key that the detection and the establishing establishment of the diagnosis of severe PPH is key to inform everybody in the team that we are dealing with a severe bleeding situation. And then the second point would be follow uh, coordinated coordinated between all the departments who are that are involved. A coordinated treatment algorithm to um, substitute the patient with what is needed and so that surgical and hemostatic medical measures are going hand in hand and that will probably although has not been shown yet um, that will probably improve the outcome of our patients
1: Well, thank you so much, um, both Professor von Heyman and Professor Senti. Uh, It's been an honor and a privilege to be here uh, monitoring the discussion Um, as well. I'd like to thank the listeners for uh, joining and hopefully um, they can use some of the information or uh, the gaps that we've highlighted to inspire some of their future work.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for this interesting discussion. Uh, We've learned a lot from your conversation on the various treatment strategies available for PPH and their corresponding scientific evidence. If you also like this episode and you want to find out more about PPH, then please look for the other episodes in this series on the Obstetrics and Gynecology Medical Conversation podcast under the account of core 2 Add Medical Education. Also, don't forget to rate this episode, subscribe to our channel, or inform your colleagues about it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast is an initiative of Core to Add and developed by Obstetrics and Gynecology Connect, a group of international experts working in the field of gynecology. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts and they do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the Obstetrics and Gynecology Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Courtois website.